0: Hello, I'm Daniel Jurgen, Vice Chairman of IHS Market, and I want to welcome you to this Sierra Week conversation presented by IHS Market. Today we're talking about energy and infrastructure, and I'm very pleased to welcome Mike Summers, who's the President and CEO of the American Petroleum Institute, and Heather Zeichel, who's the CEO of the American Clean Power Association. Uh, welcome to you both, and uh, I note that both of you, before you took uh, these positions, uh, had a lot of experience in, in politics and policy. Uh, Mike, you worked in the House of Representatives. Heather, you worked in the House, Senate, and of course, as uh, President Obama's energy advisor. So wanted, wearing those hats, I want to just ask you about, um, in this supposedly very divided time in American politics, uh, how did we get a uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill?
1: Well, first, um, thank you for that uh, kind introduction and for the opportunity to join you today. And it's good, to, as always, to serve on a panel with Mike. Um, I, you know, having been in DC for twenty years, um, and I think Mike would would not disagree. Um, there's, we have had a time honored tradition of a conversation about a major investment in infrastructure and people define infrastructure in a variety of different ways. Some people think about roads and bridges, some people think about transmission lines, and, um, and, and, and but, I, but I think overall, there's this broad recognition that the United States is falling behind in terms of our infrastructure and our investment in our, uh, in our cities and states. And, you know, I think it's a testament to the Biden administration and, um, you know, the leaders in Congress that against the backdrop of so much partisanship, they were able to come together and find legislation that was attractive to both Democrats and Republicans um, and get that that legislation across the finish line. I, in particular, am really excited about the provisions included for transmission in the grid. Obviously, as as we think about clean energy, transmission in the grid are really, really important and often overlooked.
0: Well, so, Heather, we will certainly uh, come back uh, uh, to that uh, in some depth. Let me just add, kind of let Mike come in, too, because I think, Mike, you told me that uh, uh, that it was ever since you came to Washington, not 20 years ago, but 25 years ago, infrastructure was on the agenda. How, how did you see it coming about and how did it get to be bipartisan?
2: Thanks, Dan. And uh, Heather, again, it's great to be with you. It's always fun to do these panels together. Uh, look, I would I would really sum it up in one word. Bridges. I think the reason why they were able to come together is a bipartisan focus on, on getting big things done uh, in, in particular Senate states and particular uh, House congressional districts. Um, if you look at what motivated you know, Senator Rob Portman or Senator Mitch McConnell, it really was one bridge that connects uh, Ohio and Kentucky, the so-called Brent Spence Bridge uh, in, the, in the city of Cincinnati. Uh, that is an, an aging piece, piece of infrastructure. Both have promised to get that bridge fixed uh, since they came to Congress, uh, you know, 20 some years ago. Uh, And I think uh, that was one of the key motivators to to get uh, this done on a bipartisan basis. Uh, You think about, you know, Senator Bill Cassidy, there's a big bridge over Lake Charles in in Louisiana uh, that he's been trying to get replaced since he came to Congress. So I do think that some of these individual projects really uh, uh, focused the mind for a number of members of Congress and senators uh, to get something big done uh, that will help their individual states. Uh, there is nothing that focuses the mind like those kinds of uh, crumbling infrastructure projects uh, and potential reelection uh, being in danger if those infrastructure projects don't get done. So uh, this was an unconventional way to do it. Usually when uh, big highway bills or big infrastructure bills are, are done, uh, they they usually increase the, the gas tax. But uh, there seems to have been developed a bipartisan consensus against uh, raising costs, uh, particularly on those uh, making under $400,000 a year. So they took the gas tax off uh, the table immediately and looked for other ways to fund uh, this process. Um, what I'd say is, is that uh, while there always is bipartisan uh, support for funding infrastructure, there's not bipartisan support on how to fund infrastructure. And I think that was the key difference between what what has happened in the past where they haven't been able to get something done and what they were able to get, get how they were able to get this bill done in particular.
0: So he- Heather and Mike, uh, what did, what's the key thing about the funding? How did, how did, it, get, how did it get done? if it's not a gas tax.
2: There were, there were a number of different ways that, that they, they, uh, they funded this bill. You know, uh, some of them you could call, uh, you know, gimmicks uh, that they used uh, that, that are, have historically been used to, to fund these kinds of things. But, you know, they were also able to, you know, come up with some important bipartisan compromises uh, without raising taxes on the American people. Um, so, you know, I, I think it was a, you know, relatively historic accomplishment. I think the challenge is going to be five years from now when they try to do this again, you know, they've really done a lot of the uh, bipartisan things that they thought that, that they could come to consensus on. The challenge is going to be how you continue to fund these right. infrastructure improvements uh, without uh, raising the gas tax or finding some other way uh, to fund these kinds of uh, priority programs.
0: Right. Well, let me pick up on the point that Heather uh, started on before and ask you, uh, both, uh, what are the key? What's most important for your respective industries? And uh, Heather, you started to talk about transmission. Do you want to expand on that? What's What's the agenda here for clean energy?
1: Absolutely. Well, as we look at the world today, we're really excited that deployment of clean energy is happening across all fifty states and at higher levels than at any other time, to- any other point in time in American history. Um, Unfortunately, we also recognize that as we are deploying clean energy, we recognize that there's a potential for an Achilles heel if we do not have the clean energy transmission and energy grid to move those electrons around from the windiest and sunniest places of the country to the population centers. And um, this bill, the, the bipartisan legislation represents the largest investment in American history in um, energy transmission and, 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 and the grid. And there are a handful of pro- provisions that include, um, you know, siting provisions, um, trans- transmission facilitation programs, a number of ideas that have been bantied about and, and, and contemplated in Congress, but it's also, you know, that the energy grid is one of those things that it's it, you know certainly has bipartisan support, but it's often that one thing that's forgot forgotten about, right? Like there's a lot of a lot of focus on wind turbines and solar panels, and people kind of forget how important being able to move those electrons around the country actually is, and it's not just about you know, how do you how do you build the transmission line it's how do you go through the process to get that cited, how do you make sure the permitting process is working and how do you make sure we're getting timely decisions because some of these transmission lines take upwards of 10 years to approve and you know we're trying to deploy clean energy as quickly as possible so we need a set of policies around transmission that are um, that are going to allow us to, to, to continue to increase um, deployment of, of, of clean energy including well, wind solar around the Well,
0: country. I'm going to want to ask both of you come back pick up on your point in a minute about permitting is a really key question but let me first uh, ask uh, Mike from your point of view uh, what's the most what are the big things that matter to your industries uh, in in the bill?
2: Yeah, you know, I I do think one of the most important components of this bill is that there was uh, recognition by passage that oil and gas are going to play a very significant role in the future going forward. And we have to fund infrastructure that supports uh, that that oil and gas uh, future that we know is going to be there. Um, I think Heather and I both agree that renewables are going to continue to play a larger role in our energy mix, but that oil and gas are also uh, going to continue to play a very significant role as well. Uh, And one of the things that this bipartisan bill did was uh, it did put forward uh, uh, unprecedented uh, funding towards uh, carbon capture utilization and storage technologies and other funding um, that is going to be important to continue to build out. Uh, oil and gas uh, infrastructure going forward. So let me give you one example of of that. Um, This bill actually allowed uh, carbon sequestration derived from natural gas uh, in the OCS. um, And previously that was only allowed for coal. Um, It also funded uh, CCUS demonstration projects uh, and infrastructure uh, that we think are gonna be very important as we continue to move towards a lower carbon future going forward. Um, And then there's also uh, funding in this program for uh, researching applications for hydrogen derived from natural gas uh, and other feedstocks. So this is a pretty exciting uh, new investment uh, in these kinds of things. And in addition to that, There's also uh, new funding to uh, cap orphaned wells, uh, and that is a program that API has long supported. So this is a a really important bill, uh, and uh, we're excited that we could support uh, those portions of it uh, that will ensure that oil and gas will continue to play a very significant role in our energy future going forward. So
0: so Mike, hydrogen's on your agenda. Uh, Heather, is hydrogen on your agenda too?
1: Absolutely. Um, There's there's actually a, a very large... Coalition of um, NGOs, industries, trade associations, et cetera, that have um, that recognize the really important opportunity that we have with hydrogen. Um, and the, the research and development program that's included in the um, bipartisan bill has a lot of um, support on both sides of the aisle. And, and again, I think what I'm excited about with the passage of this bill whether it's you know, the grid cybersecurity, the transmission line pieces, the um, OCS opportunities, all of these things help remind us that at the end of the day, energy can truly be a bipartisan issue and a, and a bipartisan initiative. And I think what we're trying to focus on at the American Clean Power Association is taking advantage of those bipartisan opportunities to build stronger, broader coalitions and hydrogen certainly is one of them.
0: Speaking of the American Clean Power Association, it's a real, I mean, API has been around f- for a century. How long a- American Clean Power has been around for a year?
1: We're Well, we are it, almost a year. Uh, we we okay. were launched um, last January um, and we've hit the ground running. We are the um, only trade association in Washington, D.C. that speaks on behalf of wind, both on and offshore solar storage and transmission. Um, and I think, there was broad recognition by um, a lot of clean energy leaders that it was time for our industry to punch at our weight. We are now 415,000 plus workers strong. Um, we have some of the fastest growing jobs in the country and wind technicians and solar installation. Um, and. Um, where, you know, $360 billion have been invested in this country in wind, solar, and energy storage projects. And we need to speak collectively and holistically with one voice on behalf of all clean energy technologies. And um, I couldn't be more proud um, to have been chosen to 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 run this trade association at a really unique point in time in history.
0: Right. And it, I mean, it's the basis of it is the, the old American Wind Association and
1: and that is correct, yes. The, um, the board of the former American Wind Energy Association looked around the table and said, you know, the days of pure play, wind, wind energy companies are, are over. We're all in wind and storage, or wind and solar and storage, or wind and transmission. Um, and we also, I think there was a broad recognition that, um, you know, clean energy, the way that clean energy Was thought about a decade ago when a lot of when some of these trade associations were stood up is very different today, and so we need to speak. You know, we we need to we we need to be better resourced as a trade association. We need to be doing better on thought leadership. We need to, um, you know, be be playing the political game not only in Washington D.C. but in the states as well in a more effective manner, Um, and so that's what what we are. You know, again, we're building the plane a little bit while we fly it, but. This, this is a really unique moment in time where you've got um, the new administration, you've got this bipartisan infrastructure bill that we're gonna be implementing in the weeks and months ahead. Um, and, and then there's obviously the ongoing discussion about Build Back Better, which, um, which, which would you know, be right. a game changing for, for our industry.
0: Are you both um, uh, Are you both surprised by how quickly hydrogen has come to the front of the agenda? Or the front of the discussion. I'm not sure which would be the right way to put it. Well, uh, Mike. Mike, do you want to take that? And yeah, I mean, uh,
2: you know, we we recognized uh, hydrogen as a um, important uh, key energy source uh, early this year um, as part of the API Climate Action Framework, which we released in March of this year, which really was. Uh, What we put forward as a bold agenda for how we think that this administration and how the industry uh, is going to tackle the climate challenge, and it did address uh, the importance of hydrogen as as part of that future. So uh, we're, you know, pleased to be working with Congress on some of those initiatives Um, Our member companies at API, um, and we have about 600 member companies. Um, as again, and again, Dan, you mentioned that we're about 102 years old as an organization, um, are, are putting significant uh, investment into, into hydrogen as well. Um, but of course, you know, this is a technology that's been around for a long time. Uh, but now, uh, I think is, is really where it's having its moment. Uh, and uh, our, our member companies are stepping up to the plate and uh, really making the investments that are going to be necessary for this uh, technology uh, and this resource to be used in the future.
0: But let me ask, pick up on a question that's already come up and uh, Heather started to get into it. And it's something where you certainly both come together uh, in concerns, and that, of course, is the subject of permitting. Um, maybe, uh, maybe start with Mike and then Heather, but Mike, how difficult is it to build a pipeline and does this bill do anything for uh, permitting?
2: Well, absolutely, Dan. I mean, I, I think one of the concerns that we've had for uh, you know decades is uh, the ability to, to build pipelines to get energy from where it is to where it needs to be. And I think increasingly we've had challenges in building out of uh, the pipelines in this country. Um, as you know, there are about 530,000 miles already of pipelines uh, in the United States. Uh, those, uh, you know, we need to continue to invest in that infrastructure because we know that the United States is going to continue to use petroleum and natural gas um, for their energy needs. But increasingly, every pipeline that's tried to be, that, that we try to build or that we try to improve has become a political issue. Uh, and I do think that this is an area where uh, the Clean Power Association and API can come together to form alliance because, Uh, I suspect, as you start building out high-powered transmission lines um, and using eminent domain uh, to build those uh, and getting permits at the state and the local and the federal level, that it's going to be a huge challenge uh, to to get that uh, permitting process done. You know, I often reflect on the fact that, you know, it took 44 months for the United States to win World War II uh, from the moment that we entered the war after Pearl Harbor uh, to uh, victory in Japan Day. Uh, and uh, it's really, really incredible that, you know, at this point, we're, it, it takes us, uh, uh, you know, almost decades to get the permitting in place for some of these uh, high profile pipeline projects. Keystone XL is just one but one example. Um, and I do think that that's going to be a challenge for uh, clean power going forward as well. And I think it, what we should be doing is really working together on how do you reform these processes so that the American people have access to all forms of energy going forward.
0: Well, let's, So, Heather, let me ask you to talk about, uh, you started to talk, you brought up the issue of siting transmission lines, their importance and the challenges there, uh, and then uh, maybe ask both of you what would be the reforms that would be necessary uh, to, uh, to actually mean that we could get things cited within as much time as it took us to fight World War II. Uh, but heather i know transmission lines are really central to uh, to to your association right now and so if you could elaborate uh, yeah, on I, their I, importance
1: yeah and and and, and in fact I, I mean it would it would i'd be remiss to not you know point out that there as we are trying to build clean energy projects whether that's wind and solar you know there, there are wildlife impacts that we're, we as an industry are constantly trying to manage for um, offshore wind is a really lovely example of how government takes way too long to make decisions. Since I was working on offshore wind permitting in 2002, and we just now have our first federal permit, and it's a little bit beyond 2002. Um, so, why, why did it?
0: T- why did it take so? Why does it take so long?
1: Well, I as a policy, my inner policy nerd is about to come out. But I think the the challenge for offshore wind is is. A little bit different and unique than you know if you're if you're citing a, 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 a wind farm or a new transmission line the challenge around wind was we just never had done it before and there wasn't actually a permitting process in place and so in the beginning in early years it was kind of shoe, shoestring and chewing gum to hold to figure out like how would you actually get a permit um, and it wasn't i believe it was 2005 when we actually passed legislation that created a permitting process um, But again, doing something new and being a first mover is is hard. Um, The good news for for the United States is we've figured that out and we do have a great queue of permits um, that the Department of Interior has been processing and working through and and we feel really good about um, the 30% goal by 2030 that the Biden administration um, has laid out for offshore wind. setting, so that's kind of, offshore wind is like its own special basket of issues. But when it comes to building a transmission line or uh, a solar array, you, you the, 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 the permitting process is important in that you need to balance environmental versus commercial interests. But you can't create a process <laughs> where, I mean, it's great that we all think we should triple the deployment of clean energy to meet our climate goals, but if we can't get the permission, the permits to do that, and we can't get at a state, federal, and regional level, we can't get um, the green lights to make these investments. We're just not going to, you know, we're going to not be able to. You know, we're going to hit grid saturation in some well, portions well, of the so, country. So,
0: Heather, let me ask you to, to to develop that point further. We know that when Mike's members want to do a new pipeline. A whole lot of people say, "Well, what about the climate impact?" And that becomes a reason to kind of hold it up and go to court. But when what what holds up transmission lines? I mean, don't people just rally around them?
1: Um, you can, I mean, you can. I could point to any number of projects. It's it. It tends to be a right of way that goes through a wildlife management area or you know federal lands. Um, there are issues with pollinators um, and solar panels um, there are issues the issues with what with po- po- bees pollinators um, oh, bees yeah, yes yes oh. um, this, long story short there's a concern that if you if in a world where we're really focused on making sure we um, create a future for our pollinators which is a very important job for, for bees and other pollinators um, there's some issue uh, issues around citing um, solar and the need to make sure there's enough access for habitat for pollinators. Similarly, I mean I've been in meetings when I worked in the government about how do you how do you put a large solar array in the middle of the Mojave Desert where you've got some endangered tortoise species. Um, On top of that you know you've got situations where wind turbines and the technologies continuing to improve and enhance but you know, there are issues with golden eagles and, and bald eagles and bats. And, and so, again, it's it's not to say that any one of these issues it isn't important. It's, it, I think about it through the lens of, we've got a ticking time bomb on, with climate. We need to make sure that we are responding, as an industry, like we are obviously wanna be in, responsive to concerns about managing um, environmental protection, but at the same time, if it takes ten years to build a transmission line to br- bring a bunch of clean energy on the grid in the Midwest, that's not like, that's not going to help us meet our challenges. And so that there there's a lot of work to be done, I think, on the how do we how do we get to a place where it's not impossible to invest in infrastructure and to have that certainty and predictability so that you can put that money into that project or know that. you're not gonna have a stranded asset when you build a a large solar array in the middle of Nevada.
0: So let me ask you, so let's say um, you get a call both from the Congress and whatever the administration is uh, in a few years, and they say, uh, listen, we want a coalition of the API and the American Clean Power Association to come together and tell us how to reform permitting. Are there three or four things that you guys would put at the top and say, "This this this is what would make a difference?
1: So, I mean, this is something we looked a lot at in the Obama administration because it's not going to be a surprise to anybody listening to this um, discussion that permitting challenges are not new um, and they're, they are not new to Mike's member companies and they're not new to to mine either. Um, And, uh, and I do think that there are some important decisions that can be made at the government level uh, in looking at time-bound decision-making, in looking at-
0: By time-bound, you mean that there's a deadline, a decision has to be made by a certain point?
1: Yes, Um, because what we find a lot of times is we'll get one permit and feel like we're, like our, our offshore wind project, for example, is off to the races. And then at the 11th hour, you'll have like, pick your favorite, Governmental agency come in and say, "Oh, but wait, we have a lot of concerns about issue X, Y, or Z." So I, I think time time bound decision making is important. I think more transparency around the process so that people understand what like what's actually in the queue, and and we're able to hold government uh, accountable for making those timely decisions. Um, and then you know I I think there are likely some provisions in and around. NEPA that are worth a discussion. However, as somebody who is a very strong environmentalist, I care a lot about how we, ha- how we make those decisions and ensure that we are, not, um, we are not creating loopholes for industry to drive a truck through.
0: Right. So Mike, what would be your agenda for uh, permitting reform With, in this new coalition that you guys are going to form together? <laughs>
2: I, I do think that that uh, some of the things that Heather highlighted are exactly where we would head. Um, you know, as like time-bound decision making, um, certainly some more transparency. A lot of those, by the way, were actually advanced by the previous administration as they looked at NEPA reform. Uh, and I would hope that uh, we could we could come together and uh, advance some of those again. Unfortunately, a lot of those uh, NEPA changes that were advanced by uh, the previous president, um, were, uh, were reversed immediately by President Biden, um, and we were disappointed in that decision. But you know, I think a lot of times we also have to keep in mind that sometimes climate goals are actually contradicting climate goals. I'll give you an example of that. So uh, in the Northeast, uh, they still get a lot of their, uh, their energy to heat homes from heating oil. Uh, and that wouldn't be the case if we were able to build a pipeline that we can't get a permit for um, you know, to the Northeast to uh, I- ensure that we, they could have access to reliable natural gas. Of course, natural gas would be better for the environment. It would be better for the climate. But because we can't get a permit to build a new pipeline to the Northeast, uh, that is actually uh, you know, continuing to harm the climate. So, I, I think that there are, you know, there's a lot of contradiction right now in, in some of these permitting discussions when you actually can do something that would markedly improve the environment. But because, you know, activists have a certain view of, of what should be happening with our energy future, we're not advancing, an, advancing some of those short term steps. And I think that's what's most disappointing about the permitting process right now. And I do hope that uh, we can work together on some of these permitting reform issues. Because I think as we have been challenged over the course of the last decade in in building out uh, pipeline infrastructure, I think that is going to be the thing that stands in the way of uh, more renewables coming online uh, in the next decade.
0: I mean, if you guys and your organizations do come together on permitting, that would be a very powerful coalition that probably would be unstoppable but or at least uh, would have a lot of uh, ability to overcome Dan is
1: already Dan is already putting us to work, Mike.
0: <laughs> He's a coalition builder. Yeah, exactly. Coalitions of coalitions. Let so me turn just to a couple of other topics that we, in the time that we have. Uh, are there, we're seeing unprecedented supply chain disruptions that we've never seen in the 30 years of uh, synchronized global supply chains. Wanted to ask how that's affecting, or is it affecting either of your industries, Heather?
1: So it's it's a great question, and I think it's I think it's impacting every single thing that that we do as a country. Um, I the so yes, there are supply chain disruptions that are impacting wind, solar, storage, and and um, and transmission. Having said that, what what I'm excited about is even with that backdrop, we still had a banner year last year in terms of clean energy deployment. So we've been able to stick our finger in the dike enough to be able to to deploy a record level of clean energy. I think that I think the question that we're all kind of searching for now is as we look to the future. Um, you know, we we find ourselves in this ongoing conversation about the pandemic and and how that overlaps with these supply chain disruptions. Um, you know, I I think we had a lot of confidence, but then you add, you know, new variants and you add, um, you know, the 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 really, you know, the, the potential to have a new pull with the Build Back Better legislation um, on, on deployment. And that's where I think things get a little bit murky um, and, and we, um, you know, spent a lot of time discussing what, you know, supply chain policies. Again, we're an 11 or 11 and a half month old opera, uh organization, but you know, I think we plan to launch a, a number of initiatives looking at this supply chain issues in uh, 2022.
0: Well, certainly the issues around minerals uh, and all kinds are going to become really important, and uh, and there's a lack of recognition about what the nature of the supply chains that we actually take for granted. Uh, Mike supply chains an issue for your industries?
2: Absolutely. And Dan, no one knows this better than you that uh, the global oil business uh, is is global. And uh, it depends on overseas markets uh, to uh, in, ensure that we have the materials that we need, and I will say that you know this isn't something that's just been unique to uh, this uh, administration. You know, we had challenges under President Trump when he imposed steel tariffs. That you know we need uh, the steel from different markets uh, that, uh, that they imposed uh, tariffs on. So this has been uh, a long-term concern for uh, the oil and gas industry. But another component of this that uh, we haven't yet discussed is just the worker shortage. I think the big challenge for the oil and gas industry right now is, you know, as prices have risen, uh, how do you get workers to come back to work to work uh, in uh, oil and natural gas? And I think if you asked uh, API member companies, uh, the challenges in getting folks to come back to work, uh, given uh, vaccine mandates, and, uh, you know, some of the other federal, the the federal uh, programs that have kept people at home, Uh, and a trucker shortage that is massive uh, within the industry uh, are probably the biggest challenge that they're facing right now.
0: So at IHS Market, we we cover so much of the global economy, and whether we're talking about at ports everywhere, I mean, we see this shortage of workers, uh, truckers among others, but workers as a general problem afflicting the economy that, uh, and as you say, it shows up in the oil field. Does that show up in your, Heather, in your industry?
1: Absolutely. Um, You know, look, we're contemplating standing up offshore winds for the first time in the United States of America and the kinds of skill sets you need in order to go. And I mean, think about just think about erecting a a giant wind turbine offshore and the kind of skills um, one would need in order to do that. What's exciting to me is that there's actually a lot of overlap between the oil and gas workers and um, offshore wind. and, and, And I think you know, we're looking at ways to sort of find transferable skills, but we're also having a lot of conversations at a state and federal level about what we need to do to build out the workforce. And, you know, I mentioned in my opening remarks that um, wind technicians and solar installers are some of the fastest growing jobs in the United States. Um, And so continuing to um, recruit and, and, you know, find workers today for those jobs, but also think about what are the skill sets we're going to need for, um, you know, for those those projects, those offshore wind projects, those hybrid energy storage projects down the road? Um, and, and that's where we see a big opportunity to work not only with um, um, private colleges and institutions, but um, labor unions as well. And again, I think that's a, a big focus for our member companies.
0: So you just mentioned storage, and um, uh, the American Clean Power Association isn't done because uh, you're going to merge with the American uh, Energy Storage Association.
1: Absolutely. What,
0: what, what's, what's that about?
1: Um, well, again, we, we wanted our trade association, the vision from the very beginning was to represent all clean energy technologies and have them under one roof um, to be the go-to voice for wind, solar storage, and transmission. And um, we had um, done a, a lot of work, and I think rather than have like, somebody that specializes in solar over here or storage over there or um, transmission over here and then there's like 75 different versions of storage and electrification and uh, you know automobiles like let's just bring everybody under one roof and um, you know we had our board and, and as well as myself had so um, had, had been really impressed with what ESA was able to accomplish with a very small team and a very small amount of resources. They really put their trade association on the map and um, delivered in Washington. But
0: why, you know, why, is, why is storage so important?
1: So, I mean, storage in and of itself, as we think about power, the, I think the opportunity to do these hybrid projects that are like wind plus storage um, are, are really going to be you know i think we're going to start thinking of storage as an energy source in and of itself i'm really excited about what we're seeing in the cost curves and the technology deployment so it's a big new area of um, policy opportunity um, again if we get um, the build back better that includes um, uh, investment tax credit for batteries um, uh, i think that's going to be a game change for this industry but more and more there's this desire for these hybrid projects. And we wanted to make sure that we had the best and the brightest to not only continue to work in Washington, but also it's real, the, the storage agenda has a lot, is very important at the state and, and regional level. And they have a lot of the expertise and knowledge to do that. So we just uh, uh, agreed that we are gonna lock arms and, um, and and work together towards that broader storage agenda together.
0: Right. So uh, Mike, let me ask you a question. Uh, Observed. I mean, obviously, we know the president has invoked the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, uh, but you, uh, to put more oil into the market at a time of high gasoline prices, or at least what have been high gasoline prices, you have an interesting take on that in terms of what it means in terms of the importance of supply. Do you want to uh, uh, elaborate on that?
2: Yeah, uh, so look, the president made the announcement It was uh, that they were going to release about uh, 50 million barrels of, of oil from the SPR. Uh, you know, but let's put that in context. Um, the world currently consumes uh, about 100 million barrels of oil every single day. So it, it really is uh, one half of, of one day of uh, world uh, demand uh, for oil that they put on the market. So this really was just, a, I think, a Band-Aid, uh, even in coordination with other countries who also uh, put uh, some barrels on, on the market as well. But uh, I think one thing that we know is that uh, uh, long term, oil and gas are still going to play a very significant role in our energy future. In fact, uh, IEA suggests that even in 2040, even if every country meets its its goals under the Paris Climate Accord, uh, that uh, uh, oil and gas would still account for almost 50 percent. Of uh, world energy demand, so I, I do think uh, you know we have to be realistic about what the energy future looks like, and that means we have to continue to invest in oil and gas. Uh, the United States is is currently about two million barrels down from where it was pre-pandemic, uh, and uh, you know it is our view, and this has been borne out in numerous different studies that uh, that uh, the United States continues to produce oil and gas in the, vo- the most environmentally responsible way. So we know that the demand is still gonna be there. The question is where we're gonna get that oil and gas, and we think it's better to get it from the United States um, because we are subject to strict environmental laws uh, and standards, by the way, established by the American Petroleum Institute. So uh, we know that the future is very bright for oil and gas, and we wanna make sure it's bright for the workers who are employed in this industry. Uh, we employ you know, over 11 million workers in the United States. Uh, we want to continue to grow that uh, and expand our footprint throughout the world in terms of them receiving uh, oil and increasingly liquefied natural gas from American suppliers.
0: Right, and that does keep the dollars in, inside America. Uh, last question for Heather. One word, Heather, predictability. You know what I'm talking about in terms of tax credits and policy. Yes, I want to give you a word on that.
1: Uh, well, listen, it, it's in the United States today. Our climate policies run through the tax code, and um, the I think that's why. I mean, it is hard to. It's hard enough to build an industry when your certainty is in two and one and two year increments, based on whether or not um, the, uh, the 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 um, ITC and PTC extensions happen in Congress. Um, the Build Back Better is a game change in that it will provide a decade of certainty and predictability for clean energy companies, something we've never had before. So it is going to be very meaningful in terms of job creation. It's going to be very meaningful in terms of meeting climate targets. Um, and it's going to be very meaningful in, in terms of putting America back in the pole position. I and mean, when we've fallen behind other countries when it comes to, you know, the manufacturing and, and um, uh, deployment of clean energy and America should clearly be number one. Uh so we have um great hopes uh that the Build Back Better legislation will get through the House now um uh, and hopefully um get through um through the Senate and and ultimately onto the president's desk for sign.
0: Well Heather and Mike, I want to thank you both for a very um uh, Uh, penetrating and thoughtful discussion about infrastructure and many issues that follow from that in terms of the future of of energy. Uh, As I listen to you both, I wonder about that coalition that you'll form to uh, (laughs) come together to reform uh, permitting. And also as you talk about developments, for instance, offshore wind uh, and what a scale that is and and its uh, parallels and drawing upon uh, uh, oil and gas experience offshore. I wonder when the day will come when uh, you'll have companies that will be members of both your organizations at the same time. So, I think
2: that's uh, already true.
1: It, it is already true.
0: Oh, it's already true. So, <laughs> so these times are changing. <laughs> that's very impressive. OK, I've got to catch up with it. So um, it shows you how things are changing and how the energy future is evolving. So let me thank both of you for a great discussion today. Thank you for joining us for the Sierra Week conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Dan.